now. Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi. Hello to Boo Boo. Hello to Scooby Doo. Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? Well, I have—I I kind of have an anecdote. I have an anecdote in that I was reading Rock Hudson's like collaborative memoir that was published after he died he had contacted a writer who he kind of vaguely knew and asked her if she would just interview all of his friends and put together uh, a life story and um it probably didn't work out the way that rock anticipated because he told everybody to tell the truth and then they did and um (laughs) (laughs) there's a really good bit where they're talking about how rock became insufferable in the last couple years of his life because he was just always just like drunk and depressed and self-loathing and he went from being an upbeat kind of uh you know close to the vest guy emotionally to being somebody whose signature phrase became fuck him i hope he dies (laughs) and he'd say it about everything like if a pizza guy was late fuck him i hope he dies (laughs) well which one of us would would turn into rock I'm already there. Yeah. I mean, yeah, true. We're all already there <laughs> to some extent. Pillow talk. Pillow talk. Another night I hear myself talk. Talk, talk, talk. Wonder how it would be to have someone to pillow talk with me. I wonder how. I wonder who. All right. Well, uh. Welcome to What's in the Basket. My name is Candace, and this week I'm going to be presenting the 1959 sex comedy Pillow Talk. And I'm here with my co-hosts, Tiff. Hello. And Amelia. Hi. So Pillow Talk is not the vision of its director, Michael Gordon, but instead that of its producer, Ross Hunter. Probably the last great producer of the studio system in that he was the last active producer who had any measure of the kind of power that producers were accustomed to having unilaterally while working for the studios during the golden age. He'd begun as a young performer at Columbia in the 40s. He worked on a lot of B-movies with people like Judy Canova and Larry Parks, uh, that kind of second tier of musical stars that nobody remembers anymore. And then he got a lucky break when he worked with Anne Sheridan, on a film noir called Woman on the Run. And then Sheridan took him under her wing, and she turned this former high school drama teacher into a real movie professional. She gave him an in at Universal, and at Universal he developed a reputation for work that was like passably intelligent in that it didn't insult the audience's intellect. But more importantly, it looked posh, and it looked prestigious while still coming in under budget. Because Universal was very budget conscious at that point in time in the 1950s. And this is when 
Hunter first works with Rock Hudson. He works with him in a red face farce called Taza, Son of Cochise. Starring Rock Hudson as Taza, Son of Cochise, fighting to lead the Apaches in the path of honor. Naichi, throw it on your gun. While a vengeful Geronimo threatens revolt. So Rock then got his favorite line of his career, which is Taza will build Una's wiki up. I hope he dies. I hope he dies. <laughs> so there's a lot of like garden variety, like 50s racism in a lot of those early uh, productions. But uh, I don't think those are the movies that Ross Hunter wanted to make. What he wanted to make were movies like Pillow Talk. He's best remembered today for Pillow Talk and the other frothy comedies that he made for Universal. But I'm going to go into a little bit of background here. And I want to talk about his enormous contribution to cinema and his work with Douglas Sirk. Now, Sirk's melodramas have received renewed attention as the film world kind of wakes up to the significance of the woman's film, to both the Hollywood system and to women's self-perception during the Eisenhower years. And you can see in Pillow Talk and in Hunter's other pictures with Doris Day much of what you see in his work with Sirk, which is a respect for women's desires. And Hunter's attempts at men's movies, the westerns and adventure projects he was assigned through the Universal Studios pipeline, lack the heart of both his dramatic and his comedic work targeted to female audiences. And his movies for women can be soapy or they can be slapstick or whatever the tone is, but they're about real fears that women have, like of aging or of the constraints of marriage or that the men that they love are not who they appear to be. The material is secondary in a Hunter Cirque picture. And we can say that definitively because there are 10 of them and I can't recount the precise, like, beat-for-beat beat plot structure of more than, like, two. You walk out of a Douglas Sirk movie not remembering what happened. But what you walk away with is an impression of the profundity of other people's pain, which is no small feat at a factory like Universal, where expense was the key criterion. And all they cared about at Universal in the 50s was whether or not the movie came in under budget. And... Uh, Like, Rock Hudson became a star with Magnificent Obsession in 1954, and that was, in turn, a remake of the 1935 production that made Robert Taylor a star. And they share one of the dumbest plots ever conceived. Just, like, absolute horseshit. She's saying something. (laughs) Yes. It's a complete dump, stir-fire, filled with bull feces of a movie. Of a plot of a movie. It's a good movie, but um, the whole thing with like, <laughs> is, like, there's like a jet, ski, not a jet ski, but like a jet boat, and then there's like blindness, and it's just the whole thing. It's it's horrible, but it doesn't matter. Believe me, it'll be a magnificent obsession. And uh, for a long time, people wrote off the Cirque movies as being superficial because they thought that since the plots were meaningless, the only redeeming aspect was their beauty. But I think that the undercurrents of emotion there that distinguish those movies are just that they're undercurrents. And some critics, and by some critics, I mean most critics, missed them because they were not hip to how beaten down and like how repressed the women who loved them felt at that particular juncture in the 20th century because their men... And they all should have been castrated. Yeah. Yeah. This is partly why we made this podcast. We just don't want to hear men's opinions on anything. Exactly. Especially movies. And that's what I think is so great about Pillow Talk, because it's not about men at all. In the sense that there are men in the movie, and men made the movie. But it's all a story about Doris's internal journey, and about how she processes the world around her. 
And um, I bring up Hunter's work with Cirque on those like very sad, very stupid movies as a prelude to discussing Pillow Talk because like always hovering on the edge of a Cirque picture is like the life not lived. And Cirque heroines find themselves standing on the precipice of what is supposed to be like a settled and comfortable maturity. And their deliberate movie is about women who make deliberate choices in pursuit of love. And they come to the tragic realization that there are no do-overs in life. But when Ross Hunter made his comedies, he took that basic formula and he kind of transmogrified it. So instead, a hunter heroine can have it all. She can have like love and marriage and personal fulfillment as three discrete, separate concepts through the magic of comedy. Men impinge on the rest of her life, not the other way around. And those two drives, sex and success, are ultimately reconciled in the third act. Cirque and Hunter shared an understanding of movies and what they can be to people, particularly to women, which is a validation of their private fantasies of personal agency. And that's where Pillow Talk comes in. Holy shit. You, you are so smart. I read a book one time, and it was a good book. I don't remember what it was. I read an interview where Frank Henenlotter said he ate a hot dog. <laughs> I mean... If any of these people were on the record about eating hot dogs, I'm just so mad that <laughs> I couldn't get Doris's autobiography because in it, she just apparently just goes off. She just goes wild about everyone that she ever worked with. And I'm just very mad, sad. This is going to be a podcast, but we'll do another Doris movie at some point so I can bring in the oh, goss. For sure. Yeah. So um, I feel like I should summarize the plot of Pillow Talk. It's about two people who share a party line back in the days when multiple households had the same telephone number. And one portrayed by Rock Hudson is a playboy composer who has a string of women flowing in and out of his apartment like a conga line. And the other portrayed by Doris Day is a straight lace interior decorator who is mad as all hell that Rock keeps the line tied up, serenading his many admirers. You are my inspiration, Eileen. A perfect combination Eileen Tu es mon inspiration Yvette Une parfaite combination Yvette Would you please get off this phone? about it constantly over the phone they never meet in person and we learn more about their their personal lives doris is a woman who puts her career first which is why she's been evading her rich suitor who's played by the incomparable tony randall <laughs> and uh she's got plans and a man doesn't figure in them and of course tony is rock's friend and rock finds out the identity of the woman who shares his phone number yada 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 uh-oh and he decides he's gonna have some fun 
part of, I keep saying part of, but part of what makes Pillow Talk so cool and relatable to the youth is its visual style. It was kind of remarkable because there's, you can definitely see like the universal cheap, you know, uh, tight purse strings at play in the sense that Doris's apartment looks kind of cobbled together and there are like no other sets in the movie. There's like what, like four sets maximum, you know, Rock's whole apartment is one room. Yeah. But Doris's apartment to me always looks a little shabby, which I guess it is because Ross Hunter is a genius and I'm not, but um, it kind of works. I think for the character because she kind of, you know, Doris kind of addresses, there's kind of like throwaway lines like throughout the movie about how like, you know, moving up in the world and how, like, I don't think she's not doing as, as hot as she wants us to believe. You know, she's very much a, a working woman. She's still climbing up that ladder. And so sometimes her apartment has, like, inappropriate, like, vaguely, like, stucco-ish flavor. I guess it's also something to do with the lighting, uh, the contrast between the lighting in her place, which is really stark and kind of makes it look a bit drab, whereas the lighting in Rock's apartment is a little dimmer and obviously there's a lot more going on in Brock's apartment, which I'm sure you'll get into, but it's just, I think the contrast really highlights the, um, the difference. Uh, well, of course it would, it's a contrast, but, um, <laughs> it really makes Doris's apartment seem quite shabby in comparison with his, Yeah, even though his is how it is. And I personally wouldn't live in it. Yeah. It just, yeah, like, like a hunting lodge in, in Doris's apartment are a little bit more faded, a little bit more wallpaper peely kind of feeling. Like she puts all of her effort into uh, her interior decorating outside of her apartment, but in her own apartment, she just doesn't have the time. Yeah, I think that's exactly, that's what I'm trying to get out here. It's um, very well thought out. Everything makes visual sense in these movies. But yeah, no, that idea that that uh, she doesn't have enough time, the idea that it, despite her best efforts, things in her personal life are kind of slipping out of her grasp, I think. And then she's got this horny guy on a party line all the time. And she's also got this other horny guy with, like, buggy eyeballs who keeps trying to buy her a car. Honestly, the whole film is about consent. Yes. <laughs> I don't consent to you buying me a car. I don't consent to you being horny on my party line. Really, that's... I have in my notes that modern life has looped around to the extent where we, much like Doris, are anti-horny. And I don't know what I meant by that, but I stand by it. I mean, I agree. Very much agree. Yeah. She's just not... Um, she's not interested. I mean, she's got better shit to do. She's got places to decorate. She's got places to decorate. She's got a life to live. She's got bars to go fertility into statues inappropriately to break into song yeah fertility <laughs> statues to look at so back to my my dude ross hunter uh he's his movies have a consistent visual palette which um is where he found kinship with sir who is also a very visually minded person and in their work together hunter thought very carefully about like color and texture and props and sets and he carried that over into his comedies in the late 50s and early 60s. And he worked in collaboration with his life partner, who was a set decorator. And, uh, like, uh, Jack Mapes. And, like, Jack had um, sourced furniture from Flesh and the Devil, uh, the 1926 Garbo Gilbert film, um, to give Don Lockwood's home, like, silent Hollywood, like, verisimilitude in Singing in the Rain. And uh, that's like the level of effort that he went to in his work. He was he was a very thoughtful and very determined guy. And Hunter spent twenty dollars a yard 
on the fabric for the drapes and pillow talk. Which Jesus. is a fuckload of money. Especially That's at Universal. A lot of money. Universal would have rather... Where were the drapes? Were they all in Rock's apartment? You know, I don't know. It just says the drapes. I'm assuming they're the ones in Rock's apartment because those are the only ones I think we ever really see. I think maybe there's some in, like, the house that Doris decorates. Yeah, that's like true. Like that older lady's house. But, um... I was thinking when she gives... a lot of money. ...his apartment that, like, you know, brothel makeover. <laughs> so it could be that. I don't know. But, but Hunter thought really carefully about that because he thought about how um, things like furniture stand and how would they tell us about character like one thing that he famously did for pillow talk was that they made the furniture for rock's apartment oversized so that when doris is pictured sitting in it or next to it or around it it emphasizes how much smaller she is physically than rock and to give kind of a sense of like how vulnerable a woman is around a man and um other directors and producers didn't think about things like that so it's kind of like Pee-wee's Playhouse. Yes. Like. <laughs> yeah. It was so oversized, in fact, that Rock bought the furniture and brought it home and used it in his house because that's how comfortable it was for somebody who is like 6'4". <laughs> so uh, anyway, so like a hunter, like Jack, Jack Mapes, is, is a guy of like really like exquisite taste. And um, you see that. I think it really, it shows, it shines through when yeah. they spend a lot of, I guess, thought in um, making sure that everything makes sense in context. I really appreciate that, appreciate that level of detail being put into things because, I don't know, it just makes me feel like even if they're trying to get a film in under budget, they still, like, care about it. It's not about just, like, oh, just dress this like any woman's apartment of the time. It's like, no, this needs to speak to the character and add a level of, depth and complexity to them and their story yeah like it, a lot of it follows like that that edith head rule of like one color and then neutrals like doris's apartment is pinks and reds and neutrals and um when you see a shot of her like when she's standing in front of the elevator in one of her most striking outfits it's just greens and blues and neutrals and um which is slightly more than one color i guess because green and blue aren't the same color but <laughs> They're on the same side of the spectrum. Yes, though. exactly. Like, there's, like, actual, like, color theory going into play with this. And an understanding of, um, like, what, again, like I said earlier, like, what a woman wants to see when she goes to the movies. And she wants to see beautiful gowns. But she wants to see beautiful gowns that are, are so beautiful as to almost be understated. And that's also what makes these movies so fun to me, is that there is no um, elitism in these movies. And... I'm going to talk about this later when I talk about Doris's screen persona, but they're not about people who were born wealthy. They're about people who have worked hard and people who have gained things. And the people who are born wealthy, like the Tony uh, Randall character, are seen as being kind of like patently foolish and like yeah. they don't deserve their wealth, you know. So he's kind of, um, am I saying Ross Hunter's a communist? No. You're not also not I'm also not that, not either. saying that he's a communist. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, uh, you know, just because we always have to go, you know, as Amelia's going to hate what I'm about to say, niche as possible. I'll kill you. Yeah. Um, I thought we could make a, a little comparison to another, like, forgotten master of the romantic comedy, which is Mitchell Lysen. And Lysen had that same visual acuity. He had been an art director early in his career. He was nominated for uh, an Oscar for a Joel movie, Dynamite, from 1929, for our 
McRae fans out there who are me. And, all three um, of them. Yeah, all three of them. You, me, and my mom. I don't know who else is going to listen <laughs> to this podcast. But so Liza's gooey fantasies that he made at Paramount and Columbia in the 30s had that same like Hunter-esque, irresistible combination of style and psychology. And the way that Rock is exposed from like the very first shot of the movie as being a cad has the same vibe as um, the way men are introduced in, in lies and pictures. I think a good example would be Fred McMurray in Hands Across the Table, where he's all like rumpled and sexy and he's stuffing his face with chocolate. And he tells Carol Lombard that he was born to marry a rich woman and never work again in his life. And from that moment, you know, he's a fucking sucker and he's doomed to fall for another poor social climber in Lombard. And like, he has no idea what's in store for him. And it's kind of the same way that in a Hunter movie, like, Rock can't toy with Doris and get away with it because he doesn't realize that yet. He doesn't realize that she's not like other women. And Lyson's men, a lot like Hunter's men, oftentimes have strange ideas about love. And he got every possible permutation of that theme out of Fred McMurray, whom he directed like a dozen times. And anyone who can get any emotional range out of Fred McMurray. (laughs) And I say that with great love. As you do with everything you say. As I do with everything I say. But I just I, I love uh, I love these movies, and uh, I think that we get to see in in really special pictures like Pillow Talk that are special all in the same way as like um, like the Lies and movies like Easy Living. Um, you get to see the psychology at play in the sense that Lizen and Hunter, being men who loved men in their personal lives, they understood what makes men tantalizing. And straight men don't have that insight. They don't understand what a woman sees in a man that she wants and what she desires. And that's part of what made Hunter such, uh, I think, a great like career vehicle for for Rock Hudson. And see, like in Pillow Talk, Doris goes through this whole spectrum of emotion in regards to Rock's character Brad and then to Brad's alter ego Rex Stetson. Uh, she feels like frustration. <laughs> she feels anger. What are you saying? What are you giggling about? Rex Stetson. Rex Stetson. Just given his whole name. <laughs> Just given his whole name. <laughs> For the people out there who are fact checking me as I speak. Um, but she goes through like frustration. She goes through anger. She goes through fear, like resignation, relief, glee, lust. And then there's, like, this bubbling hope that maybe, just maybe, she's finally found a man who respects her. She longs for the respect and love that she's found in work. And when Rex, or Brad as Rex, or Rock as Brad as Rex, is talking about horses, she thinks there's something so wholesome about a man who loves animals. You know something? Whenever I want to feel close to home, the only thing that helps is getting behind a horse. Hmm. There's something so wholesome about a man who loves animals. I hope this stupid horse knows where he's supposed to go. And I think that's a really revealing line because she dares to want a man who's tender. And what is the social environment of the 50s except like a big fat condemnation? What is the 50s except condemning tenderness in men? But because Hunter is a man, is is a gay man. He understands the role that tenderness plays in a man's appeal. And, like, good fucking luck getting anyone else to understand that who's not in that particular position. One thing that I love about Pillow Talk 
and I think about Doris's filmography as a whole, is how respect has different forms. And when I talked about um, earlier the, the idea that she wants respect in love, just like she finds respect in work, one of the major sticking points in Rock and Doris's relationship early on in the movie, when they're still just squabbling about phone usage, is that Doris wants him to respect her time. She has a business to run, and she has calls to make. She orchestrates a system of half-hour time slots for phone availability because her time matters. She believes in promptness. She believes in punctuality. But at the same time, they quickly kind of shoot back any uh, judgment on the audience's part that she's like this like rigid, fun-hating crone, the way that a straight man would direct this movie. Well, I guess a straight man did direct this movie, but Michael Gordon whatever he, we're not talking about him here uh they demonstrate how <laughs> indulgent she is of Thelma Ritter's perpetual tardiness like she loves Thelma so it's okay Thelma can fuck with her time because Thelma's earned it and Rock hasn't yeah so fuck him must you zoom up so fast what are you jet propelled or something morning Al the laundry man's coming by today, and would you please tidy up the cupboards for me? Oh, would you call the office and tell him I'll be a little bit late? That's a peach of a hangover she's got this morning. I'm afraid so. Why does she have to go out and get stoned every night? Oh, I don't know, Harry. Maybe she's got a party line. I never made that connection before. You're totally right. Also with, like, as you mentioned, with, like, uh, hands across the table and easy living, uh, there's another thing I never really thought about. And it's true that all of these love interests are far more appealing than they are in like any number of other movies like you're i'm having a bit of a galaxy brain moment here like uh like lizen lizen directed um midnight from 1939 and i love midnight i love midnight and uh like billy wilder was not happy with what lizen did to his script but like the character that don amici plays would not appear the way he does like in a billy wilder movie yeah like, billy wilder's men don't a- approach um, the like thrill of the chase the way that a man can in a Lizen movie. Like even the more sympathetically drawn men in the romantic Billy Wilder movies are still kind of there's still kind of like an eye that it's like well like there's like a hint of of well you know I mean like like Lemon in the apartment is like still like pathetic. Like, yeah, Baxter's a pathetic individual. But I don't think that that's acknowledged as being pathetic in a Lizen movie because it's not – because it's such a desirable trait. And, uh, of course, then, you know, male film critics interpret the opposite interpretation as it being, like, um, more valid and more universal because they are also pathetic. But whatever. <laughs> Doris has a really com- – is a really complex um, person. And – She's a whole and she's a complete person in these movies. And Molly Haskell, the film critic, who is a genius and one of the only ones who will survive the revolution, uh, <laughs> once wrote something really, I think, interesting about Doris. And she said that when you think about her movies, she's one of the only movie heroines who had to work for a living. And she says, uh, Grace Kelly and Audrey Hepburn, bless their chic souls, floated through life. Voluptuous Ava Gardner ran barefoot and bohemian through exotic places. Marilyn Monroe was the sexual totem for the various fetishes of 50s America. Kim Novak, Debbie Reynolds, and Shirley MacLaine, who, like Day, were not goddesses and hence had to exert themselves, still sought a man to lean on. One never felt in them the driving, single-minded ambition that one felt in Day. 
which is like 100% true. Yeah. 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 And for another statistic, uh, Janice Welsh, the film historian, once did the math. And Doris's characters have an outside career, a career outside the home in 75% of her movies. And you don't need a statistic like that for another actress unless you go back to like Crawford. And that's probably yeah the sheer volume of movies that she exactly and because Joan was never going to be like believable as an heiress in the same way that Doris would not be believable as an heiress. I think Doris plays an heiress a couple like times like in like T for two, but it's not it doesn't work. You know that's part of the reason why I think the whole like cultural osmosis understanding of Doris as the forty year old virgin is irritating. Not only because it's a gross oversimplification, but because the women she plays avoid men for a damn good reason. Well, I mean, it just strips that interpretation, just strips her of her own agency. It's just like she's her own person and she's doing her own thing. She's got her own ambition. She's striving forward towards a goal. And when a critic reduces her as to just a 40 year old version, it's like, well, you're just making her an object for men at that point where it's like, why does a man need to validate her at all? Yeah, like she doesn't need to be exactly like um like uh, look at like Move Over Darling. There's like a really like foggy understanding of consent in Move Over Darling, just like there is in My Favorite Wife. But uh, she'd still rather drop dead than sleep with Chuck Connors, and they are the only two people. <laughs> basically stuck on that fucking island but she still well, has got mean, better shit to do it's very relatable yeah i mean <laughs> she has she does not want the rifle dick at all the rifleman's dick uh specifically <laughs> to explain my own joke uh <laughs> and there's been some really interesting analysis of doris's career which i'll cite in the show notes but like one idea that i find very interesting is that doris plays into an old chestnut of hitchcock scholarship which is anticipatory casting and hitchcock liked to work with actors whose screen persona suggested certain values or concepts to the audience and people always talk about like a really good example of course is like casting tony perkins in psycho because at the time tony only had played you know boy next door parts nobody would ever suspect him you know of everything that he does in psycho but um you can see this with doris because in the man who knew too much she gives up her career to play house with jimmy stewart and then their son's disappearance spurs like a breakdown for her because she sacrificed her art for her child and now she has neither and she doesn't know how to process that because her her sacrifice has been rendered pointless almost. And the climax in the Royal Albert Hall would not be so thrilling in that movie if the audience did not know Doris as the Doris of Romance on the High Seas or Love Me or Leave Me, like the hoofer or the working girl who has no one to catch her if she falls. Doris has no social safety net, you know. And um, like Haskell says, Doris is fundamentally different She's a different creature from the other Hitchcock heroines. And, like, I think a good example is, like, you could never imagine Grace Kelly in the pajama game. Like, can you ever imagine Grace Kelly, first of all, working in a factory, and second of all, being, like, a union organizer in a factory? No. (laughs) I can imagine Grace Kelly, like, being a person who, like... Would get people in to break the strike. I know. That's what I can imagine she do. gab facilitator Grace Kelly, or, like turning a fire hose on people who are striking, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I think in Doris, I think the key to Doris's screen persona is that there's a lot in her of what made Loretta Young so remarkable, 
both as like a performer and somebody who's so believable as a career woman, despite obviously being a wealthy movie star. There's this like gorgeous, vital, thoroughly American girl, and she has this like death grip about her. Like I wrote in my notes while watching that Doris is an Iron Maiden in a pillbox hat, and <laughs> she will chop your penis off. <laughs> she will castrate you as she should. As she should. And so this is like a roundabout way of saying that Doris isn't naive in Pillow Talk. Like she knows the score. And she knows what she's doing. If he only knew what I was thinking. Hold me tight and kiss me right. I'm yours tonight. My darling, possess me. Tenderly and breathlessly. Make love to me, my darling, possess me, near to me, when you are near to me, my heart forgets to be. When Rock invites her up to his apartment to, like, allegedly get his coat, she's disappointed that he would go for such an obvious ploy to get her alone because it demonstrates a lack of respect for her intelligence. And she's resigned to it as, like, yet another man letting her down. Yet another promising man who just has not passed her test. And then he does get his coat, and her faith is restored, and of course Rock knows what she's thinking. He knows she isn't going up to a man's hotel room with no idea of what's going to occur. He knows, as the audience did in 1959, that this is not her first rodeo. And I think a lot of that context has been stripped away as movies have become less subtle about sex and are more explicit in terms of, like, what experience a character has. Like, I find it very difficult to believe that people saw this movie in 1959 and thought that Doris was a virgin. I think that's absolutely, like, a late, a later misreading absent the cultural context. One thing that's that I think is, is kind of cool is when she's describing what she wants from a relationship in the movie, she says that she wants to hit the moon. And that's why she doesn't end up with Tony Randall. Tony Randall has more money than God, but he doesn't make her feel that way. And when she first meets Rex, she thinks he's a jackpot. So that the idea there is that she has experience with men. She's, she's known a lot of men throughout her life, but those men have never measured up to her standards. And so she's not going to settle. And that's, of course, part of the interior like drama of the movie and conflict is how is Rock going to convince her to settle for him when Brad is kind of an asshole. Yeah. Kind of. Kind, <laughs> kind of. of. Just kind a little of. tiny, 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 tiny bit of a butthole. <laughs> <laughs> and so also the other thing is that people, uh, I think when they look back at this movie, don't understand that it's a, it's a sex comedy. And if people think it's like a romantic comedy, and it is a romantic comedy, but first and foremost, it's, it's not about romance. And that's where it diverges from the classical pattern 
because it's unlike other romantic comedies produced after the introduction of the production code. And that Rock isn't playing this prank on her, pretending to be somebody who's not, because he loves Doris and he's winning her back or something like that, but because he wants to get her into bed. Love doesn't come into play for Rock until like the 11th hour. When I was thinking about precedent for this movie, the thing that sprung to mind was uh, Two-Faced Woman. And in the original, uncensored, rarely seen version of Two-Faced Woman from 1942, Melvin Douglas is fully prepared to sleep with his wife's sister just because he finds her attractive. He doesn't know that Garbo is just pretending to be her own twin. He thinks it's Garbo's sister, who looks exactly like Garbo, and he's ready to get all up in that gut. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. He is not aware of Garbo's game the way he is in the censored cut. He just wants to get funky. And Rock, like Melly D in Two-Faced Woman, just wants to bone down and then move on. But he has no idea what he's getting into because Doris is not that kind of girl. And he's going to pay through impreg. Big time. (laughs) He's going to pay through having a beautiful baby. Uh, And again, we go back to kind of the idea of like, what are the mid-century expectations that Pillow Talk is subverting? Because we talk about when we talk, what we talk about when we talk about Pillow Talk is how it is kind of path-breaking and it's not like other rom-coms of the 50s and, and how it signals kind of this new headwind in terms of like the war between men and women. And what I think is interesting is that the promotional materials for Pillow Talk described the two lead characters as a carefree career girl who believes in singleness and a carefree bachelor who believes in togetherness. That tension there, that idea that the roles are flipped, the script is flipped, she wants to stay single and he wants to get her involved, um, are part of what makes Pillow Talk so so exciting and so interesting, I think, so distinct, is that it's not um, a woman chases man story. It doesn't have that, um, that 50s kind of like marriage madness, like March madness but with rings um <laughs> point I to guess, it like the conflict here is the conflict itself is subversive in that yes he's the one chasing her but it's not in the way that we normally see um, a man chasing a woman i mean yes he's being deceitful yes he's being all that but the whole time while doris isn't totally aware of what he's doing and why he's doing it she is still quite in control of her own agency so she's not naive and she's you know not totally bamboozled by what's going on like she still has some understanding of what is happening and I guess that's that conflict is what makes it a little bit more subversive than like just a total um type shift whereas a woman would chase a man that kind of subversion exactly this is sort of a half-formed thought but it's interesting. I think Pillow Talk is interesting and Doris in general is interesting as an example of kind of a uh, the contrast between how we perceive sort of mid-century society now and how it was perceived by the people living in it. Like um, just sort of the, the subject of how, you know, now when people talk about Doris Day, it's, there's very much this persona that is naive. And, you know, if you were to ask someone about Doris Day, you'd think this character and the characters she played were far more childlike than they really were they're not childlike in the films they're not naive and you know doris i mean doris i haven't read a doris biography or anything but from what i remember i think she'd been divorced like twice 
by the time Pillow Talk came about. Yeah. And people knew that. People knew Doris wasn't a virgin. People knew Doris had, I mean, maybe they didn't know she'd been in these abusive relationships and shit, but they knew she was like a grown woman, right? And so, yeah, there's this very weird kind of gulf between like what we think the 50s were and what the 50s were. And Pillow Talk is it's totally, I think, falls into that. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, of Marilyn a little bit. My mom and I were talking about Marilyn earlier and how men always thought that they were getting a one-up on women. Like, oh, I'm going to, my wife is going to take me to a Marilyn movie. Ha ha. Like, little does she know, you know, that I want to bone Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, like your wife is aware <laughs> that you want to bone Marilyn Monroe. But women feel for Marilyn this extreme tenderness and this extreme sympathy and like that urge to take care of her and that's but that's also been lost because people don't under understand that um i think people today who are not familiar with marilyn's performances and who have never really seen marilyn on screen but who are only familiar with her as like a cultural object would find that to be kind of like a condescending like infantilizing attitude but it's true when you see a marilyn movie you just see this broken person and women, before they knew all of the drama and all the horrors of Marilyn's personal life, responded to that. And I don't want to say maternal, but yeah, like in a maternal way. I guess it's just like in an empathetic way, yeah. I think. It's almost like how you would look out for a friend. Like you want to, you want the best for them. You want to take care of them, like not in a condescending way, but you just want to support them the best you can. I guess that's kind of how you'd see like Marilyn like when you see her performances and you see the kind of characters that you play like it does really speak to that female empathy and like in, when in Janice Welsh's writing about Doris she talks about how Doris kind of embodies this like little sister character in the sense that she's a tomboy and she her movies have a have a striking number of like platonic friendships with men Doris gets along with men and not in that like one of the boys kind of way, but in the sense that she demands this respect and she gets it from the men in her life, even men who don't have interest in conquering her sexually. Ultimately, she men are, are willing to meet her on that level. And you're not going to see that in other movies. There are very, I, I honestly can't think of many other female movie stars whose screen personas involve platonic male friendship. I mean, I think you'd have to go to like somebody like, I don't know, like a Myrna Loy, somebody who has such like a regal bearing that it's understood that she is like above the other men in the picture around her. Whereas Doris is on the same social level, kind of the humble, you know, middle class position that she's in. These are men who are of the same ilk or even they're higher up in status than she is, just like Tony Randall and Pillow Talk. But she has no interest in using that to her advantage. And if, and men, that's what men find attractive about her, or they don't, and that's fine. You know, she she has um, kind of a, a sense of like, it reminds me of what what James Agee said once about Teresa Wright and about uh, I think it was Teresa Wright and Francis D. And he described them as being some of the only women in the movies who really had a face. And in in by that I mean that Doris carries the sense of like a full and complete social life with her. You don't need to see like a, a, a 
huge like posse of friends and family to believe that Doris is a socially secure woman in her movies. And that's part of the reason why you believe that she doesn't need a man to complete her because she has like a, a complete sense of self both professionally and personally outside of romantic relationships. And that's like, that's really weird. It's honestly very weird. And it's not, I think a lot of it is, it goes back to just that kind of like basic, like magic of the camera. What makes Doris a star? Like that's her it factor. That's what it is. That sense that she's, she's not threatening, but also she is very threatening. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, it's really interesting. Like uh, Jack Lemmon compared her to a method actor. Like, she was, like, a pre-method method actor. And says so she thought really carefully about her performance. And she thought really carefully not only about the women that she played, but about the women who were going to go see her movies. I, I think she's just such a remarkable person. Like, when she's, when she's complaining in Pillow Talk, she says that she wants a man who doesn't end every sentence with a proposition. And... There aren't a lot of act- women you could see carrying off, like, a line like that, like, a sentiment like that. Like, you go back to – I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I was trying to think of, like, other people to compare her to. I think Loretta Young is one of the best comparisons, not only because I'm the one who made it. But, like, I thought, like, <laughs> Rosalind Russell played a lot of career girls. But you always got a sense, like, with Ros, that, like, Ros could settle and – go and like live in some like big like mansion and just like put up her feet and like eat a lot of like Ritz crackers and just like move on with her life. But you feel like Doris would be bored with mediocrity and that she wants something much greater than that. People have always been concerned, confused, I guess is the word I'm trying to say about um, what makes Doris so like delectable as a former. And I think it's the same thing about rock. Like I was always, I was very surprised to learn this, but because I think of Rock Hudson, as I'm sure you guys both think of Rock Hudson, as being like such a total package of a movie star. Because yeah. we're viewing it from the vantage point of of this, like, I think maybe maybe it's hindsight. I don't know. Because, like, you know, we, we see him after, you know, seconds. We see him after those those later in, in life performances that kind of, like, redeem the fact that people earlier on did not think that he could act. But I also think it's just because we have very good taste and other people don't. Um, (laughs) But I was really surprised to find out that when you read contemporary sources about rock, like from the 50s, they don't really understand why he works as a movie star. And you're like, well, he's he's tall and he's very handsome and he's got a deep voice. But they just like didn't get it. They didn't get it at all. You get that sentiment when you read like what the press is saying about him. Like it's just like they view him as being like of like he's described one of the fan magazines. I think it was described him as being like you know a dime a dozen, in like an affectionate way. Like oh he's just like a regular person. And you're like where are these regular people who look like Rock Hudson? But also like it's saying a lot considering the the kinds of stars that were around at the time. Yeah, like you could pick for instance John Wayne. I I didn't see the appeal. But they were fucking frothing him. They loved them some John Wayne. So, I mean, I think it's a little bit rich for them to be like, I just don't get what is the what is the deal with this Rock Hudson? When it's like, did you not see any of the other stars that you had at the time? I mean, a lot of them didn't have what Rock Hudson had. Yeah. Know? And I, I just don't – and I also don't get that in part because, like, uh, I think we – because, again, we're smart people who are good at things. 
um, <laughs> with excellent judgment. We perceive there being like a depth there that I don't, I, I just, I, I don't understand not seeing that depth. Like, um, I, I know that people were apparently like very confused um, by like how like suave he is in pillow talk and they thought that he would be much more like salt of the earth like it's interesting to me like i don't understand how i i just don't i don't fucking get it people are wrong always people are wrong always and um i think that's really the point of this podcast yeah absolutely absolutely Uh, people are wrong about so much we'll find out more next week there's a bit of a teaser but People just can be so utterly wrong about things and think that they're right. And it's just mostly they're men. And that's an yeah, issue. Exactly. Because honestly, muzzle men. Like when um, when Doris complains to the phone company that Rock won't get off the fucking line and then they send a woman to go, you know, check check out the situation. And she describes it as being like sending a marshmallow to put out a bonfire. And... I see rock as a bonfire and I'm like, well, maybe that's because we're aware now of like the duplicity, like the layers of um, performance there rock being somebody who people didn't think was a good actor, but he was a good enough actor to convince the world that he was sexually attracted to women for 30 years. So (laughs) I think that makes him a fairly good actor. And Rock really resented the games that he had to play with publicity. Rock resented the way that it destroyed his relationships with the men that he did love. And I think that eventually it destroyed Rock's own sense of self. Rock found, as he became more and more and more famous, that fewer and fewer and fewer men that he was interested in were interested in him because they were so awestruck by like the finality of his fame. And he came up against this issue constantly in his personal life where that he wanted to model the behaviors that he grew up with in the society. He wanted to be the man of the house, but he resented any man who would allow him to be himself to be treated like a wife, kind of. And I, I just I see so much of Rock's like rage and confusion and I think like certainly like a palpable hurt in a lot of those performances because of what we know that happened off screen. But I feel like even if I didn't know that I'd be able to sense it, maybe that's, maybe that's gay privilege, but um, (laughs) having good taste in movies, I think it might be, I don't know. I just, (laughs) I like, there's so much poetry there and yet people were legitimately confused when he gave a good performance in pillow talk. And I'm like, it's a movie about a straight man who pretends to be a gay man to ward off a woman back into the arms of a straight man who is also himself. I mean, isn't that just, that's Rock's whole life, except slightly in reverse. I don't know. I guess I think it also goes back to the idea of the making of a movie star. Like, I find Rock and Doris both interesting in the sense that Doris, like, fully, like, emerged, like, fully formed, like, a movie star. Like, Michael Curtiz saw her for the first time when he was looking for someone to cast in Romance on the High Screen, High Seas, and he was like, oh, that's it. That's her. And every time she tried to, like, invent some sort of, like, little bit of business, um, you know, with with acting, he'd be like, you know, stop. Like, you are who you are, and that is what's going to make the whole world love you. So 
she's in love. I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love. And um, whereas Rock was, because of the environment that he was in at Universal was very like deliberately like processed as a movie star, which I think is part of the problem. Probably why, why people didn't understand the depth of his performances. People thought that he was too manufactured, but rock was so carefully crafted. Like rock's voice was broken, you know, like bogey and Bacall. He did not have that naturally deep, like luscious, like velvety voice. They broke his voice manually the same way they broke, you know, Laura Bacall's voice by having him scream a lot next to a piano and to smoke cigarettes and to drink a lot. And that's what gave him that timber the same way that it gave Bacall that, that husk, that husky tone to her voice. That is terrifying. It's horrible. And yet they all had to do it. Yeah. Who else had to do it? Who else had a really high voice? Um, I mean, all of them, but uh, it, it just, I think people didn't people didn't respect Rock. I think because he was a Hollywood product, and that is of course like I think ridiculous because he is such like a perfect embodiment of like fifties Hollywood. Like everything that that symbolizes kind of like the layers of like artifice and that like sense of like this like impending like doom the collapse of the system like everything there is in rock's persona everything is there in rock's performances and that's why i think he and doris make such a refreshing couple she said that what she liked about them was that they looked like a real couple they looked like people you would know like you'd see them together and you think all right well like that those people are in love rock and doris did love each other very deeply very 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 deeply i tell you i'm just worn out does does anybody have another hanky I have a towel, Doris Mary. Would you like to use it? Yeah! <laughs> How did you know I was here? Are you kidding? After all those pictures we've done together, I'd know that cry anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce to you one of my dearest friends, Mr. Roy Harold Fitzgerald of Winnetka, Illinois. <laughs> Anyone here from Winnetka? no kidding aside folks mr roy harold fitzgerald you all know as the one and only mr tab hunter (laughs) you come back here tab you come back and give me a kiss before you go And it's not even so much that quality, that natural, like, affinity that they have towards each other and their great rapport, as much as the fact that, like, I think it's just, like, an interesting synthesis of somebody who's a very natural performer and somebody who's a very cultivated performer whom people write off as being too natural at the same time because they have shit taste in movies. (laughs) So... That's what I feel about. I mean, like, I just, I don't, I, I mean, and I think Pillow Talk is such a great, um, like, 
showcase for both of them. But I, again, I, I always go back to, to Ross Hunter because I think he's just such a really interesting person. And again, he thought so carefully about props. Like there's a scene where Rock is, you know, schmoozing a girl and he's holding a champagne pony, like a champagne glass, but we call it a pony, those of us who are alcoholics. He's holding it in one of his big hands, like it belongs in like a doll's house. Like it's a little miniature thing. And then it cuts to, to the girl he's, he's romancing and she's holding it with two hands. And it's like, it's just such a smart shot. It happens so fast and it cuts back and you don't even notice it unless you're the kind of person who notices these things like I am because my brain's broken. And it, it's just, it, everything is, is so quickly suggests character. I mean, think of all the times that Thelma Ritter doesn't even have to say a word and you know that she's totally hungover. It's just, it, everything about it, it's, it's all about framing. It's all about just really like deliberate decisions and that, to me, is, like, the beauty and the value of a Hollywood studio movie is that somebody's thinking about these things. Somebody has to, you know. And <laughs> nowadays, I don't feel like anyone's thinking about those things because nobody has to, you know? Well, yeah, and, like, even with most recent examples of all the continuity errors we've been seeing in fully formed television, <laughs> HBO, um it it goes to show how much thought did used to go into it, whereas now I feel like less thought goes into it because they're just like, oh, we'll just get that out in post. And I think that drains a little bit of, I guess, the warmth out of it for me. I mean, not to say that all modern film is bad and all no classic film is good, but, I mean, I guess there's something to say about them back then being able to only have, like, it's like we've got this many shots, we've got this many attempts to do them, we can't afford to fuck it up. Yeah. Um, so we've really got to think about it, uh, whereas now I guess there's just not that level of urgency and, I guess, craft, which is disappointing. But then again, I haven't seen all modern films, so there could be people out there doing it. No, they're all bad. <laughs> I, I know for one, James Wan isn't doing that, so I mean... <laughs> They're all extremely bad and terrible. I really love, um, there's a bit at the beginning of Pillow Talk, it's almost a misdirect, where we see Doris in the morning and she's making a Bloody Mary. And for a minute you think, is she making this for herself? Is she drinking at like 7 o'clock in the morning or 10 or whatever it is? And then Thalma Ritter comes in and you just see her drink it. And you see that Doris has made this for her and she's left it out and no one addresses it. No one like there's nothing spoken about this bloody mary but it says so much about like their relationship and about thelma's character and about doris's character and and about the tacit acceptance of alcoholism <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's it's like it's completely physical it's there's it's it's really sweet almost in a horrible way it just says so much about everything right in this like like 30 second interaction that they have without speaking yeah, yeah. I, I, it humanizes uh, Doris's character to you know to a degree because it's like you know she's set up as this career woman she's you know ready to you know break boundaries and ceilings and do all of that she's got no time for romance but then she still will take care of Thelma Ritter so yeah you know. yeah she's got time for Thelma to be a lush you know <laughs> because because again like I, like I said Thelma's earned it Thelma's earned her trust you know, yeah. Thelma offers her something that clearly men don't. And that I'm going to suggest that could mean a lot of different things. <laughs> and even 
as much as I, you know, my thing with Tony Randall. Are we going to get into that now? I, we we can get into that if we want to get into that. I was just going to say, I think that... I mean, what can he do? He's dead. So let's get into it. I mean, I I just think that I, I, I find Tony Randall to be very... Conf- now talk about... I was t- <laughs> Why don't people understand Rock Hudson? Well, I don't understand Tony Randall. And for <laughs> me, I never see a Tony Randall performance, except for maybe, I guess, in the Rock and Doris movies, where I'm like, well, this would not be better without someone else you know what i mean um <laughs> like i i always again I, I i go back to like a, i always talk about my favorite story is that when they were shooting one of the pool hall sequences in irma Deuce, and every time jack lemon fucked up and could not remember the line or he'd botch it or whatever billy wilder would go okay tony randall like <laughs> and to me that's everything you need to know jack lemon on his worst day in one of his worst performances in one of his worst movies it's like that's tony randall and <laughs> woof <laughs> woof i mean i i just don't i don't get it i don't get it the same way i don't get jack carson you know that uh, maybe i just don't i mean i don't think buddy, anyone gets jack carson <laughs> somebody I, got jack carson i feel like it's a, casting him i mean it's, it's a great it's a great um disservice to doris that she was uh a cast against him in so many movies it's just oh like, god it's just disgusting so so much better on every level than he was as a performer. Yeah. This is just not an equal performance. Um, yeah, it's annoying to see him, that giant glazed ham. As horrible as he is in every way and probably should have been guillotined very early on. Um, <laughs> there are so many really funny bits with Jonathan, like – which is the, the, the Tony Randall character. Like when, uh, she, you know, she tells him that she's in love with Rex and his reaction was, oh, Jan, how could you ever fall in love with a tourist? Like, <laughs> that's a New Yorker if I've ever heard one. And there's a scene when, when they're in like a, a bar. I think it's the bar where they sing Roly Poly. And Rock is in the foreground and then Tony's in the background and he's bumping foreheads with the hat check girl as a way of like flirting. And it's like, well, this is everything, you know, like, no wonder Doris won't sleep with him. Because that's weird. He's a weird dude. He's annoying. I mean, when he first, uh, you know, uh, when he talks about being a member of, like, a, a, I think he uses the phrase oppressed minority, and then he quickly clarifies yeah. millionaires. <laughs> Trouble with you is you're prejudiced against me because I'm part of a minority group. What minority group? Millionaires. You outnumber us, but you'll never get us. We'll fight for our rights to the bitter end. We've got the money to do it. I mean, I guess that says something to the how clever the writing was for the film. Um, I guess there's a place for him and his delivery because it does offer something being like, well, Rock's not a very good guy, but, I mean, he's st- I still prefer him to Tony Randall. So it's like I guess that creates that tension. It also sets you up for a moment of very intense catharsis when he gets the shit beat out of <laughs> at that diner by, like, two uh, very, very fun truckers. Yeah. Two comrades. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're just, they're against the elites. They're ready to beat up millionaires. That was class activism. As everyone should. It's class warfare in the diner. He's so, I mean, maybe, okay, because Pillow Talk the script and its early incarnation did bounce around a lot in the 40s. I think RKO 
optioned it and then let the option elapse like three times or something. So there is an alternate universe in which Pillow Talk does co-star Jack Carson. So maybe we should just be glad that we don't live in that universe. <laughs> Tony saved us from a worse fate. Pillow Talk is just it's a movie that really in a lot of ways shouldn't work because you shouldn't forgive Rock for this whole like prank, you know, ruse i call it a prank in in a positive sense like at at worst you know this like horrible you know lie um that that he pulls with doris but you do and um i think part of that goes back to the amazing device that they implement which is the split screen and you the viewer starts to see like starts to sense and understand subliminally that they fit together because they quite literally fit together on screen through the split screen. They gently place their feet together. They sure do. Through yes. the split screen. There's so much foot content in Pillow Talk. Uh, there's, uh, Maybe that was Michael Gordon's contribution. The foot <laughs> shit. Because I don't really know what he did on this movie. Because apparently he wasn't very proud of it. And he never really made another movie like Pillow Talk. And certainly I don't think anything that was ever like as good as Pillow Talk. But um, he came from, like, the theater scene. He was a member of the group theater, you know, out there with, like, Lee J. Cobb and, you know, John Garfield and people like that. And um, I, I don't think that he, he thought – I think he thought the material was beneath him, quite honestly, which is a shame. But um, it's fine. He doesn't – he doesn't I – don't, I don't see any, like, discernible, like, any of his touch. I don't see any of that. I don't see anything in this movie that makes me think, like, oh, it's like a Michael Gordon movie, but I don't think he'd see damages it, so whatever. I mean, I guess that's the most you can say for it. What the fuck was I talking about? Oh, now I wanted to talk about the M-Preg. That's what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> and gender subversion in this movie. People talk about Pillow Talk. I'm going to keep saying that. I don't know why I keep saying that, but critics have discussed Pillow Talk in context of uh, gender and gender roles and how it subverts our understandings of, like, mid-century, like, gender dynamics and all that, that horse shit. But what I think is the most compelling argument for that is the fact that there is an entire subplot, which I don't see frequently discussed. And I feel like that's how you know that more people lie about having seen Pillow Talk than they've actually seen it. Because whenever you talk about it with somebody, nobody ever goes, hey, what about the part where they think that Rock is pregnant? <laughs> nobody ever mentions that. It's like my mom had a film professor in college who who had a theory that people lied about having seen It's a Wonderful Life because they didn't want to feel left out, you know? I can see that. Yeah. I mean, I think people lie about seeing a lot of movies. I don't think as many people have seen Citizen Kane as they Oh, absolutely not. And I feel like a lot of people haven't seen The Godfather because you can make (laughs) a really baseline, obvious Godfather joke and just get complete blank stares from people. Yeah, like if you made one and then Tiffany and I would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Because we haven't seen it. Yeah, and I think that, I think people lie about having seen Pillow Talk. I think partially because Pillow Talk is part of like, if I asked you like quick, like name like five like old like romantic comedies, you go, oh, like, uh, you know, it happened one night, uh, you know, Pillow Talk, uh, f- uh, f- and then your head would explode. Not you, you know, just the generic. No, me. Not yeah, you me. specifically, Amelia. But um, <laughs> I feel like you could name more than that. But people, I think, live haven't seen Pillow Talk because nobody ever goes, like, what about the whole Mpreg subplot? Which is well, fascinating. Also, what about the whole scene where they sing a song about a very fat man? Yeah. Come on, Miss Morrow, you know this. I don't know all oh, the words. Oh, yeah, Jan, sing. When I first laid eyes on him, I laughed just like the rest. The more I saw, the more of him, the more I liked him best. God 
And Roly Poly is just, what a weird scene. Can, okay, we'll, we'll get back to the Emperor in a second. But the fact that Doris goes to this bar and is just like, oh, like, let me join in singing, professional woman whose job it is to sing. Like, does that woman show up at Doris's job and be like, um, you know what? I'm going to decorate this apartment. I'm going to pick the drapes this time. Yeah, there's a bit at the beginning of that scene where Doris is like, oh, is this really pulley? And the way she says it implies that everyone knows this fucking song about this fat guy. And then she has the lyrics on a sheet. She's given a sheet with the lyrics and she's, you know, picks it up immediately. But I struggle to believe that everybody knew fucking roly-poly it's like the title song it's a very sort of ham-fisted attempt to sort of you know shove in these opportunities for doris to perform and i can't blame them she's great but yeah it's yeah because the audience is totally gonna expect doris to break out in a song at some point yeah like you can't just not give that i mean look at even you know the man who knew too much like hitchcock had to give that the people doris singing otherwise they would have rioted <laughs> in the streets and case sarasara just happened to be much better than Roly Poly. <laughs> <laughs> Roly Poly fucking blows. And the fact that she gets it and she can just immediately like sight read it. And like I don't know, I'm not a professional musician the way Doris was. I'm assuming that sight read. I don't think sight reading is that fast. I don't think you grab the sheet of music and then you're immediately like just like launching into it. I think she might take a second <laughs> to gather herself first. Well, you know, from her excitement, apparently she knows Roly Poly by heart because she's a uh, really hyped to join in on that one. She's a roly polling enthusiast. <laughs> and anyway, back to the Emperor. Well, speaking of fat men, I guess. <laughs> so uh, the Emperor subplot. I'm gonna. I'm gonna again summarize this for people who haven't seen the movie. Basically, when when Rock is trying to avoid Doris because she doesn't know that he's Brad and not Rex, and it's part of that whole like double identity thing. Um, he he's in the office the building where Jonathan has his office, Tony Randall has his office. And so he just ducks into the first business, which happens to be a doctor's office. And he goes in there and he's like, I, w- I want to make an appointment. And then the lady's like, for your wife? And he's like, no, no, for me. And blah, blah. And then of course now it's like, oh, and then everybody, the doctor thinks that Rock is some sort of, you know, medical marvel, the first man who's pregnant, blah, 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 blah. And there's a bit where like the doctor says something crazy. The man said he was going to have a baby and you let him get away. But he was obviously a psychopath. What if he weren't? But Dr. Maxwell. Miss Resnick, medical science still has many unknown regions to explore. And then it just cuts away and then they just like don't address it until the very end of the movie. It's great. It's really funny when it comes back in. Yeah. Because you're like, you forget about it and then you're just like, oh yeah. And then it it's like this sweet final note to go out. I don't know whether I'd necessarily call it sweet, but it's a funny moment to go out on. That kind of ties the whole thing in together. I do agree that a lot of people probably lie about seeing Pillow Talk, uh, but there's something about that subplot where I also forget about it. Like, I've seen this movie oh, a same. million times, and Absolutely. every time I'm like, he, he goes into this obstetrician, and I'm like, oh, fuck, this is the part where they think he's pregnant. <laughs> it's just as weird every time. I feel like like if it were like a Bob Hope movie, and like Bob Hope went into the obstetrician, it'd be like, oh, this is so funny, because like, obviously Bob Hope would never be pregnant. But there's something about like <laughs> Rock as like a gay man in a movie helmed by a gay man where there's this whole like possibility apparently of him having been inseminated. It's just like, it's just, it's <laughs> so wild. And I understand like, um, you know, I'm, I'm going off a little bit of hearsay here because I was not alive when this happened, but my mother remembers watching the Oscars the year that rock died and for their like tribute to him, they just played the scene from Pillow Talk when he's talking about like doilies in the bar 
And Doris was really, really, really mad because she felt like it, they were treating it as a joke and that mm-hmm. they were treating Rock's career as a joke and the way that Rock died as a joke. And she thought it was very mean-spirited, which, of course, is... I mean, she's not wrong. She's not wrong. And it totally was. But I think it's, like, it's part of, like, one of my favorite, like, Rock Hudson moments on film, not only because it's it's interesting to see that, like, understanding of, like, effeminacy and of... of stereotype like coming from somebody who is gay and somebody who had such a well publicized difficulty with being gay tell me about your job must be very exciting working with all them colors and fabrics and all Would you like some dip? I'd love to. Thank you. Mmm. Ain't these tasty? Mm. Wonder if I could get the recipe. Sure would like to surprise my ma when I go back home. <laughs> to see the whole I mean the whole pregnancy subplot is just is so bizarre and it plays way again way more bizarre to me than it would be if it were somebody like i don't like again like a bob hope or like a fred mcmurray maybe like if it happened to fred mcmurray because you never for once could see fred mcmurray i don't want to say the words that are in my mind but going through the process that would lead to him becoming a pregnant man he personally gave birth to all three of those sons (laughs) <laughs> which reminds me of like because we're definitely gonna have to do a double indemnity app and like his like the whole thing between him and edward g robinson is to me like one of the most like profound love affairs in the history of film like <laughs> he loves him why did edward g robinson play so many homosexuals do we know this is a conversation for another this time a conversation for another we're gonna time. have to do like a Special Edward G. Robinson special. A very special episode yeah. about Edward G. Robinson. No, but uh, like, okay. And I also thought it's interesting because I had completely forgotten about this until I was reading one of the many excellent resources that I will cite in the show notes about Pillow Talk is that when Rock is going up to Tony Randall's office to tell him the good news and he's like, and, and then the, the, doctor who thinks that you know he's the first pregnant man comes running after him and like puts him like you know in a, in a chokehold or whatever just like dragging him away and then rock's like I'm, I'm pregnant or whatever and he's like we know we know yeah it's great and then rock yells out for tony Randall. he's like jonathan jonathan and it like the, the critic whom who wrote this particular bit suggested that it's like a, like you're seeing it framed as if like tony is the father of rock's child <laughs> Like, he's reaching out to the person who's going to deliver him from this really awkward and weird situation. And that just happens to be Tony Randall. And then you think, well, Tony Randall and Rock Hudson having sex isn't really something I want to think about. All right. And then you can't stop thinking about it. Like, I can't. Right uh, now. Yeah. As we speak. 
just climbing that like a tree. <laughs> just stop while you're ahead. Such a small man. How tall is Tony Randall? We were making such good progress on last week where we haven't even mentioned circumcision once. <laughs> you know, I was trying to think of how we could link that back in, into Pillow Talk, but I don't really know if there's a circumcision moment in Pillow Talk. I don't think there is, and I don't think we need to. You know, but we're going to be able to talk about necrophilia soon. Why on earth? Because Laura <laughs> McPherson is in love with a corpse. Do you think he saw, like, spoiler alert for people who haven't seen Laura, like, did you, do you think he saw, like, Diane Redfern's, like, head, like, blown off and was like, that's the woman I love? We gotta stop. <laughs> Does he make a connection stop between the corpse it. and the Look, portrait we'll of Laura? Yeah, get no, to I've the necrophilia when we'll get to the necrophilia. We don't need to go into it right now. It's called a teaser, Amelia. Yeah, but... This is episode two. We've still got a few episodes before we get into that. Who knows how long it'll take us to get to it. Amelia's going to put off necrophilia as long as she can. Well, I don't know what else I have to say about Pillow Talk. So I think we've covered uh, the key cultural contribution of Pillow, pillow Talk. Uh, and I guess what it did to subvert the genre and also um, the impact and suitability of Doris Day and Rock Hudson as stars and how much we hate Tony Randall. So I think, I mean, what else is there there left to cover other than fuck hornies? <laughs> That's what Doris said. Hornies don't have rights. She's right. They don't. She's just trying to sing her fat man song. Which is a very horny song, actually. Which is a very horny. And then she sings a very horny song. Like, Possess Me is a very horny song. That's she changes her tune quite literally. She does. She does a complete reversal um, on her non-horny stance, which is it's a bit of a betrayal if I'm being honest with you. But top five anime betrayals. <laughs> I can I can I can live with it because um, I, I she's just such a a sparkling presence on screen. Yeah, Doris fucks. Doris does fuck. Doris fucked quite literally. She was the mother of a child, so she knows she fucked at least once. Doris fucks. Uh, I made a note about how Tony thinks he's won when he sends Rock to the country about, like, 75% of the way through the movie, when really Rock is just planning on doinking Doris, like, in Tony's bed. And Tony's like, well, I figured this one out. And then he's getting cucked. Tony Randall gets cucked in this movie. And then he gets beat up in a diner, and it's great. Honestly, he just gets what he deserves, being so rich and still having his head <laughs> I know. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there should have been a crossover, like, pajama game, pillow talk crossover, another bedtime item-themed crossover, in which then Doris from the pajama game then, you know, advocates for his execution. Swift and brutal. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Merciless. It's better than he deserves. Yeah. That's true. All right. You want to tell us about the thing next week? The thing, the thing next week. Well, I don't have anything prepared for this outro, so whether we keep this in or whether I have to record a new one remains to be seen. But um, you guys can look forward to the delights and the surprising, I guess, analysis of the thing and the contemporary reaction to the thing and then the revisionist history that surrounds it. So I uh, look forward to that. It's going to be real juicy. I'm very excited. And uh, I guess, once again, we don't actually have any, like, URLs. <laughs> Schedule. <laughs> that too. <laughs> there, oh, yeah. No, we do have a URL. 
It's it's soundcloud.com slash basket cast. Okay, so we've got one URL. We'll get some more. We have a Twitter, but I'm changing the, the URL so we don't have a Twitter URL. We moment. are going to accumulate various resources. We're going to become more professional very soon. Yes. And by very soon, that is a scale that could be months or even years. <laughs> but we'll get there eventually. Someday. We're making very slow progress. In all areas of our lives, not just the podcasting. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. We'll be great. You'll enjoy it. Hopefully. I don't care if you don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, okay. Over all right. So Amelia's saying, just just like Rock, fuck him. I hope he dies. Yeah. To our own audience. <laughs> all right. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Tiffany's going to embroider a jacket for me <laughs> Absolutely. with that on it. Hey guys, just a super quick clarification. We teased Amelia's upcoming episode on John Carpenter's The Thing in this episode, but we've since made some changes to how we want to sort of approach our release schedule. From this point on, we'll be shifting to a full-length, fully researched episode every two weeks, because it turns out uh, that amount of research does take maybe more time than we anticipated. So in the intervening weeks, we'll be releasing kind of shorter bonus episodes that are more off-the-cuff, less research-heavy, where we just sort of shoot the shit about maybe like more obscure movies, movies that can't necessarily sustain an episode of their own, like a a proper episode. So next week, Tuesday, September 17th, 2019, Candace and I will be back with a bonus episode on two lesser known Constance Bennett pre-codes, 1930's Sin Takes a Holiday and 1932's Lady with a Past. Then the following week, on Tuesday, September 24th, Amelia will present The Thing. So I do think they're both really fun episodes. Hopefully you'll join us for those. And also, we've gotten our act together somewhat on the social media front since this episode was recorded, so please check out our WordPress blog for music credits and show notes and social media links if you're so inclined. That's at whatsinthebasket.home.blog, or you can also find the link in the SoundCloud description for this episode. Uh, Yeah, that's all. Thanks. All right. That's (laughs) a wrap. Bye. Bye. See ya. Okay, I really have to take the dog out. (laughs) (laughs) He's just pissing all over the floor. Okay, I'm I'm gonna hit stop. Uh, yeah, Tiff, mine is gonna be, I couldn't keep, like, the needle going while it did whatever it did, so you're gonna have to do a bit of, yeah. I'll Frankenstein it. (laughs) You'll Belial it. You'll Frank Henenlauter thumbing Belial's prostate it. Can we not? No, I have to. I'm trying to be a serious person reading this time, and if I want to talk about prostate, I get to talk about prostate. Prostate will come back into play at some point while talking about Pillow Talk. I'm sure it will. So Rock finds out who Doris is. He finds out that Tony's in love with her and blah, 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 blah. And uh, he decides he's going to have some fun with this broad. God, I hate the word broad. I hate the word broad. I should take the word broad out. Todd, make a note to remove the word broad and dub in a word like woman or female person. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> note made. Just just like that. Okay. So Just bleep it. Yeah, just bleep it. Just bleep bleep the word broad. Bleep every other word I say on this podcast. I'm going to bleep prostate. <laughs> You're not going to bleep broad, <laughs> prostate or I'm I almost said protestant. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what I think about the schism okay so uh with the catholic church um okay i don't know what i was talking about oh but uh 
<laughs> can you tell I haven't had any caffeine in the last couple? We have to pause so I can get some coffee. But um, then you'll just need to pee again. Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> We're leaving that. 